listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Amen. If you're not in Daniel chapter 9, I would encourage you to go there. Uh, We're going to be spending our morning there the next uh, 40 minutes or so. And so we'll be looking at the first 19 verses a little more in depth, the ones that David just read. Um, A couple of things that are coming up, some ways that you can engage here um, as a church besides just on a Sunday morning. Uh, In a couple of weeks, in about a month, we have um, this D3 winter conference for our students, and we'll be answering the question of who is Jesus. And so if you are a high school or middle schooler, this is for you. That's going to be at the Locust Grove building, but you can go ahead and register and pay for that today. High school and middle schoolers, you can find more information about that on the website, southpoint.org. Um, secondly, if you're not in a life group, I would encourage you. I was talking to someone this morning, um, and really the, the, the crux, the, um, the, the, the soul of our church, the lifeblood comes through and flows through life groups. And so if you're not connected to a life group, you're going to be missing out on a lot of community, on a lot of opportunity to grow together as the body of Christ. And so I would plead with you to be part of a life group. We have those that meet all throughout this county, surrounding counties, almost every single night of the week. And so we want to make those available to you. If you want to figure out how to join a life group, you can find the locations at the Next Steps table there in the atrium, or you can look online again uh, on the website, find one that's close to you that matches your schedule. But I would plead with you to be part um, of a life group. And we just started the new year, I know, uh, several weeks ago. But this is a great time to join a life group. Uh, Lastly, if you're new, there is a Connect card in the seat in front of you. Grab that, fill it out. Uh, We'll reach out to you. If uh, if you uh, fill this out, we'll send you an email with a link to those life groups because uh, we want you to be engaged uh, with this body of Christ. And we want to be able to serve you and your family. And we want you to serve the mission of God alongside of us. And so we'll send you an email just saying thanks for being here. You can take that to the Next Steps table there in the atrium as well. I'm not going to send you tons of spam or anything else like that, but we want to answer any questions you may have uh, for us as a body. Okay, so Daniel chapter 9. If you are there already, then great. Here's the question that I want us to answer initially this morning. And we've been talking about confession. We, I mentioned that a few minutes ago. And as you read through this passage, this is a prayer by Daniel. But here's the question I want us to begin with. And I want, want a little bit of feedback on this. You can, this is not a rhetorical question. So if you feel so inclined, you can respond verbally. Um, how has sin impacted your life this past week? Some folks laughed. We don't want to tell you that. How has sin impacted your life this past week? Anybody? You cried a lot. Okay. Anybody else? You felt a lot of pain. Yeah. You were driven into isolation. Yeah. Say it one more time. Showed you grace. Yeah. Impatience. Distraction. Yeah. Hmm. 
He said he's had such a good week that he didn't pray enough. Anybody else? Didn't get a lot done. Okay. When we look at this idea of sin, I think a lot of times we don't really, we don't stop and consider the impact that sin has on our lives. Minute by minute, hour by hour. When I, when I wrote this down a couple days ago and I sat and thought about it, I was like, I could sit and think about this for hours. <laughs> and by the time I got done thinking about it, I would have had to have thought about the past few hours and considered how it was impacting my life even then. It's all around us. And we, we preach that Jesus came to die for our sin, and that's true. We're all for, certainly, penal substitutionary atonement. He takes that away, yet we're currently today in this already not yet. We're still wrestling with this idea of sin. We're still there. You see, when God created the world, he created Adam and Eve, and they were experiencing this sort of liberation this freedom, not in a hippie kind of sense. I mean, some parts of it were, like they were running around without any clothes on, but in this liberation of the soul, the state of their soul was free. And we get that for the first couple of chapters of the Bible. Then by the time we get to Genesis chapter three, it switches and we see sin is plunged into human history. That's what we call the fall. Everybody say the fall. Yeah, and so now we're still living in the repercussions of that. So here's the definition I want to give to sin this morning. If you want to write this down, there are other definitions. This one's not necessarily in the Bible, but the definition for sin that I like to, for us to use is this. It's any attempt to meet our deep needs by our own resources. Any attempt to meet our deep needs by our own resources. So when Adam and Eve, when they decide to take a bite of that fruit and they disobey the will of God. They move from the tree of life. Instead of choosing life, they choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now they understand their eyes are opened to good and evil. They understand their nakedness. My eight-year-old this past week, he said, what's the difference between naked and naked? And I said, depends on where you're from. He said, what about, what do we say? I said, we're rednecks. So we say naked. They understood their nakedness and they went to go to try to cover that up. But here's the beauty of the good news of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that God is pursuing us. God is not a compromising God. He doesn't say, oh, you know what? I'm gonna let a little bit of sin slide. God does not do that. But he finds a way in, midst of, in the midst of our fallenness to still pursue us and to redeem us so that our sin can be paid for. And so even if you consider what God the Father said there to Adam and Eve, he calls out to Adam and Eve while they're in their hiding. And what does God say? Where are you? Yeah. Did it surprise God that they were hiding? No. My kids, when they play hide and seek, with, you know, with each other, they, they really don't know where each other are. Did God know where Adam and Eve were? Yeah. When he uses this phrase, where are you? It's a Jewish, it's a Hebrew idiom. It's a way of saying, show yourself. It's an invitation to confession. It's an invitation, where are you? Please, I want to see you. I know you and bring yourself into the light. 
Confession is a terrifying gift. If I said, I've got a terrifying gift for you, you would say, I don't know if I want that gift or not. It's almost like an oxymoron. It's like, I don't, I don't know if a gift can be terrifying. It's a contradiction. It doesn't make sense. But friend, confession is a terrifying gift. Because the alternative to hiding is not hiding. There's an invitation to confession. And we're going to see that in these first 19 verses this morning. And here's the beauty of it. While those first three chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, points to this invitation by God the Father, an invitation to confession, we know that ultimately that invitation is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who will substitute himself. And so the confession is twofold. And we actually saw this this morning in, uh, when we were doing our band uh, devotional. But in Hebrews chapter 10, there's this confessional, and the author of Hebrews uses this word, this is our confession. And the confession is twofold. One is declaring faith in God, here's who he is. But secondly, it's here is my need. So here is my hope, and here is my need. I'm confessing who you are, and I'm confessing who I am. I'm confessing that I've... I've tried to fulfill my own deep desires with the things of this world by my own resources. Man, I need you, Jesus. I want to confess that, and I want you to fulfill my deep desires. So that's where we're going this morning. Daniel chapter, chapter 9, and we've been walking through this passage. This one actually this morning is a little bit easier. If you're like, I thought, Daniel, I thought the second half of, Daniel chapter, uh, of Daniel's book was going to be difficult in prophecy. Well, we'll see you next week. That one's a real barn burner. So we begin right here in Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to walk through these verses um, uh, at, a, at a gradual, a little bit slower than just reading through them, but we'll try to hustle through these a little bit. The first thing that we see here, and, and we already read this, but in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, or as David wanted to say, Ahasuerus Rex, I told him I'd to give him 10 bucks if he said Ahasuerus Rex when he was reading the passage, but he missed out on that one. In the first year of King Darius, so a couple of things that we see here, and we can go back and we can look at this historically. We also see this in other, uh, we saw this at the very end of chapter five. We see this according to the book of Daniel, but this would be about the year 538 BC. Daniel here is about 80 years old. He served all the way through this exile. He served the nation of Babylon, the kings there, Nebuchadnezzar, King Belteshazzar, and then they're defeated by this guy named Darius at the end of chapter five. And then we see that he is continuing to serve God while also serving the, uh, the Medes and the Persians. So he's, we see here in the first year of Darius, that's when this is all happening. He's the king over the, uh, the realm of the Chaldeans. And in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now notice what Daniel is doing here, even though he's been in exile for probably 65, 67, 68 years, he's still reading the Bible and praying. I know for me, and probably for many of us, we think, man, when I'm 80 years old, I hope I'm still reading the Bible and praying. Can I, can I tell you this as a, a real quick aside? Whatever your life looks like today, that's probably going to be what it looks like when you're 80. So I would encourage you, don't wait until you have time, until you don't have any distractions, until your kids are out of the house, until you retire, until the stock market hits, all, all these things. Begin today pursuing the heart of God because that's what Daniel has been doing his entire life. 
This is normal for him. And it says here that he's, he's reading the writings, also known as, or it says the books, also known as the writings, also known as the Ketubim. Everybody say Ketubim. That wasn't everybody. <laughs> that literally means this is the Old Testament that they had currently. It's the word of God that they understood to be the scriptures up to that point. And so you see here, he's reading the book of Jeremiah, and already they would understand these to be sacred scripture. Here's what St. Augustine of Hippo said. He said, uh, the holy scriptures are our letters from home. I read that this past week in a different book, and I thought, man, what a timely word from St. Augustine who lived third, fourth century. So when, they were, when Daniel was reading these, he was reading the holy scriptures as letters from home, from Jerusalem. Secondly, John Piper says this. He says, where the mind is not brimming with the Bible, the heart is not generally brimming with prayer. And so if you want to pray more, I would encourage you to read God's word more. That's what we see Daniel doing here. He goes into prayer, but he begins with the word of God. He's reading probably from Jeremiah chapter 25, and I'll put these passages up on the screen. And so it says here, if you look at, uh, at the very end of verse number two, he perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. So here's what he was probably reading from, okay? So he, he would have had this. This was already written. Jeremiah is writing to those who are in exile. But if you look in Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12, it says, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, this is Jeremiah writing before, uh, before this has taken place. So this prophecy, we're like, okay, well, this makes sense. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. We saw that. The land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So we saw the nation of Babylon. Then we get over to Jeremiah chapter 29. He also says this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. This may sound familiar. Notice the context. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your hearts. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Notice the promise, the hope that fills Jeremiah's words as Daniel reads this. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So as Daniel is reading the words there of Jeremiah, and he probably knew these words well, but as he's reading these, he starts doing the math. He thinks, wait, he said 70 years in exile. Well, when I was brought in exile, I was this old. I'm now my, man, the exile is almost over. And we see here, there are a couple of years, less than a couple of years from the exile being completed. So notice what Daniel does. He doesn't just kick back and say, man, life's about to get a whole lot easier. Man, I, you know, I've been suffering all this time. I'm due for something good to happen in my life. No, he goes and he pleads the heart of God. He says, God, your word says this. I'm pleading your character. I'm pleading your mercy. Remember this promise that you made? Oh God, renew us, deliver us, restore us to your land. Now, the question is, why were they in exile? Let me take a stab. Why were they in exile? God wanted them to be in exile. And also God didn't want them to be in exile, right? Like it was a, it was a punishment for what? 
disobedience, idolatry. They had forsaken the word of the Lord. And so they end up here in exile. And so even at the end of this, Daniel recognizes, man, we are in exile because of disobedience. God, please have mercy. Please have mercy. Verse number three. Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer. Notice the four things that we have here. So Daniel has made a lot of really good decisions all of his life. He, he surrounded himself with really godly friends. We saw in the first couple of chapters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Rinshak, and Benny. He has these really good friends that he surrounds himself with. He reads the word of God regularly. He spends time in prayer. Quick aside, this is not a, a, an interpretation application from the text, uh, or it's not an interpretation, but I would say, parents, how are we instructing our kids? And what is our lifestyle? Because they're going to pick up on the things that we value. And here we see Daniel valuing his friends, his time, his efforts, his energy, spending time with the Lord, spending time in prayer. Notice what he sees here. Uh, we, see this, we see this posture. Sorry, I got this quote by Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom said this, don't pray when you think about it. Have an appointment with the Lord and keep it. I thought, man, that's good. That's good. And if you know anything about Corey Ten Boom, that's one of the very first biographies I had to read when I was a kid. She was a woman of prayer in the midst of terrible circumstances. So Daniel keeps it. And in fact, where does Daniel end up because of it? In the lion's den. Probably the most familiar story. But notice what he does here. We see this prayer. We see this posture of visible lament right here in verse number three. And then we'll jump into the prayer, I promise. But in verse number three, he says this. There are four things that happen. First, then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer. Prayer is this. It is confidence in God without presumption upon God. So he's confident in the mercy of God without saying, God, you've got to do this. Because I'm telling you to. He's saying, because of who you are please do this. Secondly, uh, we see here uh, in pleas of mercy uh, with fasting. Fasting is withholding food to renew your focus on the Lord. That's a historical biblical definition of it. Now, some of us will say, well, can we fast from social media? Can I fast from this, fast from that? Absolutely. Sure. I, think, I think that's fine. But when we understand that biblically, historically, it's fasting from food to say, man, I'm relying on food for my physical soul, I need to be reminded that I have a spiritual soul and that my strength comes from God. My reliance is on him alone. The third thing that we see here, he's fasting with sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is a skin irritant, probably made from uh, really rough leather, the skin of animals. It's a skin irritant, and folks would wear this. You see this in sackcloth and mourning. It's a physical representation of this, of this spiritual nature of remorse. It's a reminder that, man, I'm messed up. So they put the sackcloth on me. Oh, man, this itches. This annoys me physically. I should be even more annoyed by my sin. And I, let me bring this in confession and remorse to God. Lastly, we see here that he puts ashes on his forehead probably. And the ashes, they symbolize a complete ruin. He says, I'm done with myself. So this is this posture of visible lament that Daniel brings before the Lord. So notice here, these are physical acts that represent what's happening inside of him spiritually. Then we get to the prayer here. And we see three parts of this prayer. In verse number four, we see adoration. So three parts of this prayer, adoration, confession, and petition. 
And so folks, we use that acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. This is really similar. You could almost take that ACTS and, and overlay it here, but I think it's a little bit easier for us to break this down into adoration, confession, and petition. The first thing that we see is adoration. Adoration is this. It's when we stop to consider to whom it is we are speaking. Notice what Daniel does in verse number four. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God. If you notice in verse number four right there, when the first time it says Lord, you see Lord in all caps. You notice that? That means there in the Hebrew, it's the word Yahweh, Yahweh. Anytime you see Lord, and you see it later, if you see it later in verse number four, actually, and make confession saying, oh, Lord, that Lord right there, it's not all caps. And so in the original Hebrew, he would not have been saying Yahweh. So he says here, I'm going to address God, the God of our fathers. Quick side note, the only time that we see Yahweh used in the book of Daniel is in chapter 9. And the way that he uses it, he uses it several times throughout the passage. He inter, interlaces it with uh, Yahweh, and this is a normal word for the Lord. Uh, when we see it used here in the Hebrew, it's actually used with no vowel markings. And so Hebrew doesn't have any, uh, it doesn't have any vowels. It's, it's mostly, I mean, it's all consonants, essentially. And so the vowel markings would be there in the writing. And some of those things are kind of assumed at times in the Hebrew. But when they did not use any vowel markings when writing the word Yahweh, and it was a really common way for the Israelites to write, it, what they were doing is saying, we're not going to mess with the word of the Lord. We're not going to touch even the, the writing of the word Yahweh. And the reason is because it was great reverence and respect. So we can read through that Lord, but understand when it says Lord right there, it's really important. It's, it's, there's, there's a deep reverence that Daniel has right here at the beginning of chapter 9. So he's saying, I'm going to adore, I'm going to worship the Lord regardless of my situation. He prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, oh Lord, is what he says about God, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And we're gonna see this covenant love all throughout this passage. Before we jump into the next part of confession, here's what we normally do with sin. Here's what we often do with our sin. Several things are gonna be up on the screen. The first one is this. We like to deny our sin. Now, for many of us, even as I read through this this morning and um, as we were sound checking, I thought, this sounds like my kids. This is mainly what my kids do. So before you start pointing your fingers at your kids and like, man, what a bunch of immature, immature little punks, you know, or somebody else, think about it for yourself too. Because I do the same thing. But the first thing we like to do is we like to, to deny it. I, I, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean to commit that sin. Secondly, we like to hide our sin. If somebody else or if even God can't see this, then I think I'm in the clear. I like to hide my sin. Thirdly, I want to make excuses for my sin. I was hungry or I was angry or I was frustrated or it's, you know, it's, you made me feel this way or it's the circumstances or situation. Essentially what we're saying by making excuses is, okay, well, if you feel that way, then you can just do whatever you want to do. You're like, no, that sounds crazy. I know it is. But right there, we make excuses. The fourth thing we like to do is we like to blame others. We want to blame the devil. I want to blame my wife. We can get back to Genesis chapter 3. It's this woman that you gave me. It's her fault. I want to blame my kids. I want to blame somebody else. The fifth thing that we do with our sin oftentimes is we normalize our sin. 
Well, all the other kids in my class or in my grade or in college, they're all experimenting uh, with sex or with weed or with drugs or whatever. I mean, aren't there classes offered to that in high school, like public school systems now? Like we offer classes in these things. And then we become adults. It's like, well, everybody gets, you know, kind of tired on Sundays. Everybody, I'm just, you know, I'm just consuming myself. Doesn't everybody get consumed with themselves a little bit? Isn't everybody a little selfish? Doesn't everybody cheat on their taxes a little bit? Doesn't everybody speed? Doesn't everybody... We begin to normalize sin. And then lastly, and these aren't in any sort of ranking or order, but it's just something that we do with sin. Lastly, we celebrate sin. Well, this is just me doing me. It's just who I am. It's just me identifying as this. You're like, yeah, I, I hate when people do that. Really? Those other people. It's just me identifying as, you know, this number on the Enneagram. It's just me identifying as this person who was harmed when I was a kid. This is just a personality that God gave me. Well, I just see things black and white. Well, I just can't help it. Anybody there? Sorry, any of your spouses there? <laughs> so this is what we do with sin. But here's what we're going to see that Daniel does with sin. So we saw his adoration of God. In these next set of verses, verses 5 through 15, we see confession. Confession is this. Confession is agreeing with God about who he is and who we are. Confession is agreeing with God about who he is and about who we are. And this is where we get to this idea of we have these creeds and confessions. You're probably familiar most of all with the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Another word for creed is confession. Here's what we believe about God. It's not just, you're not just confessing sin, but you're confessing, professing your love for God. I can confess my love for my wife and for my kids. That's not me saying, hey, I'm so sorry for this. It's saying, this is who you are. Two different parts of confession here. So we see here, as we read through this, we see that Daniel is naming his sin. He's owning his sin. He's acknowledging his sin. He's not hiding it, denying it. Sweeping under the rug, blaming on somebody else, celebrating and making excuses for sin. He's not doing that. He's saying, this is my sin. Beyond that, we're going to see that over 30 times in these 11 verses, Daniel uses these words of we, our, or us. 30 times he uses those words. He also says the people of Israel, your people, O oh God. He's saying, I'm included with them. And this is a beautiful picture of intercession. Now, Daniel could have claimed to be more holy than the rest of the Israelites, because honestly, he probably was. I mean, how many, Israel, how many Jews got thrown into a lion's den because of their faithfulness to God? I can think of, oh yeah, one. And so Daniel doesn't say, hey, God, remember back in chapter 6? Remember back in chapter 6 when I was so holy that I was thrown into the lion's den? These other Jews, man, they are messed up. Let me pray for them. No, let's look at these verses and see how what real confession looks like. He says, and if you want to, you can underline the number of times he says we or our or us. He says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. He's confessing here, this is you. But to 
us open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Now remember, they committed idolatry, they were disobedient. And so he's saying to those, the remnant, to where Jeremiah was, the remnant there are left in Jerusalem. Those who are here in Babylon, now Medo-Persia with me, and those who have gone other places in the world, we've all been treacherous. I'm pleading on behalf of them. Verse number eight, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings and our princes and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He goes back and he says, remember the, the law of Moses that we have? The, the books, if, if, if you're reading through the Bible, you get to like Leviticus and Numbers and you're like, you know what? Forget this Bible reading plan. This is just too much. Let me skip to like the book of John. That's way easier. Any, that's where you're like, amen. Yeah, that's me. As you read through that, it just seems so mundane and almost like this passage is like monotonous and repetitive. But what they're doing is saying the holiness of God is huge. Disobedience to this holy God comes with it. Great treachery, great ramifications, great punishment. Understand the depth of your sin. Understand the glory and the greatness of our God. That's what those books are. But the men and women of Judah had disobeyed. So he's saying, yeah, we sinned against the law of Moses. Verse number 12, he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring upon us a great calamity. This would be the exile. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. He says, even in the midst of this, even in the midst of this calamity, in the midst of this exile, we have still not sought the face of God. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us because we have not done this. If Daniel at any point could say, man, I'm better than anybody else, this would be it. He doesn't say, I pray for them. We see in this just a beautiful picture of love and leadership. He loves his people. He wants to lead his people to the throne of grace. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Therefore, verse 14, the Lord has kept ready the calamity that he has brought upon us. For the Lord, our God is righteous. Notice here, he's confessing the identity of God in all of his works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. Verse 15, and now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. When we talk about the church, we should have this idea of love and leadership. When, when, I, was, uh, when I was working uh, in the restaurant business several years ago, uh, I, was, uh, I was working in a restaurant. I heard that there was a, uh, I heard that there was a wreck outside, that these two vehicles, somebody hit somebody else's car. 
not crazy uncommon, you know, for a wreck to happen in the parking lot. So somebody said, hey, there was a wreck in the parking lot. And I was like, man, that's crazy. <laughs> that's wild. Okay, cool. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Next thing I heard, I heard that the wreck was pretty bad and that something was on fire. And I was like, man, I kind of want to go see that now, but no big deal, whatever. Then I heard that the, the vehicle that got hit was a truck. And I thought, oh, I drive a truck. Interesting. Uh, it ain't mine, <laughs> you know. What are the odds? My truck is just parked out back. Then I heard that the truck that got hit was a silver truck. You know what I mean? Then I heard that the truck that got hit was a silver Honda Ridgeline, a 2006 Honda Ridgeline. At this point, I thought, how many 2006 Honda Ridgelines are there sitting in the parking lot behind this restaurant? Then somebody came to me and said, hey, Michael, I think your truck just got totaled in the parking lot. At that point, I don't just say, oh, well, my truck, ah, bummer. Let me just keep going back to my job. No, there is a certain part of that where I identified with what had happened. And I can identify with that more than anybody else in the restaurant because it wasn't their truck that got hit. It wasn't their truck that somebody was driving a Ford uh, Escape and had lost control of the vehicle and come, th come through and hit the back end of my ridgeline and popped up in the air and had totaled two more vehicles along with theirs. It's wild, yeah. Uh, as soon as I heard that, my identity in some ways was tied to that vehicle. And I thought, man, this hurts me. I have to go get a new vehicle. I have to get a rental car. I've got to figure this stuff out. Daniel here is identifying with his people and saying, your sin, what hurts you, hurts me. I'm going to intercede on your behalf. Now notice here as he's pleading the, the name of God, here's where we get that from. If we go back to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 32, these people on the screen, but if you want to go there with me, you can. I'm going to fly through these uh, quickly. But notice what he says here in Ezekiel 36. And this is Ezekiel writing to the exiles there that would be in Babylon, those who would be in Jerusalem as well. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. Notice God here is saying, I want you to confess who I am. This is my identity. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profane. Okay. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into their, to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. So there's the hope, there's the promise of this confession by God. Notice what he says here. Notice the hearts of the people. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, uh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I will give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. We'll talk more about that next week. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. All sounds really great and good so far, right? Verse 31, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. I think sometimes we, we simply want to plead the favor and the character and the mercy of God without wanting a changed heart. 
Can you simply make my life easier or better? Can you change my circumstances without changing my spirit within me? Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that are, okay, verse 32. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Friends, a broken heart and a contrite spirit are evidence of the grace and the mercy of God. The Puritans called this perpetual brokenheartedness. Are we broken over our sin? Because here's the promises that we're going to be in the land and that it's going to prosper and we're going to be free and it's going to be amazing. But Daniel's prayer here, his confession is that if we go back into the land and our hearts are still unchanged by our sin, if, I, if our spirits are still unbroken because of our idolatry, if we are still unrepentant because of our disobedience, what good is this land? What good is life if it's successful if we don't have the spirit of God? So Daniel is pleading the mercy of God because friends, listen. We can do more good than bad. We can improve our lives in the same way that a good atheist can. We can improve the things that we look at, the ways that we spend our money, the ways that we speak, the ways that we spend our time, the ways that we lead our families, all those things. We can do really good stuff and our spirits are yet unchanged. Daniel here is praying for the spirit of God to inhabit the presence of his people. He says, change us, break us, change our deep desires from being our own resources to being the spirit of God. We confess that's what we need. That's our hope. We confess who we are. True confession. Then we get to this last part. So we've seen adoration. We've seen confession. Thirdly, we see petition here in verses 16 through 19. And I'm reminded of, of uh, Matthew chapter six, the Lord's prayer where Jesus says, let's pray that the kingdom of God would be made known. So here's how we're defining petition. is asking God to bring his kingdom to bear on the world. We're, he's asking God, notice in verses 16 through, uh, through 19. Oh Lord, according to all your righteous acts. And if, if you notice here, Daniel batters heaven by appealing to God's character. He says, according to who you are, Notice all the times he says, you or yours, according to your righteous acts, not according to anything that we, hey man, God, we, we started acting better. Can you please bless us now? No, he comes with contrite, broken spirit. According to your righteous acts, let your wrath and your anger turn away from your city, Jerusalem. It's your holy hill because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant. Listen to my prayer and to my pleas for mercy and for your own sake. Why are you going to act? Because of your character, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear in here. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. 
For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. He appeals God's honor. A.W. Pink says this, he said this, he's dead now. But he said, prayer is not so much an act as it is an attitude, an attitude of dependency upon God. Frank, can I, can I tell you this morning? God is never overwhelmed by you. We have a good father who is not bothered by you. We have a good father who has never given up on you and he will never stop pursuing you. We need to sit with that. You see, our, we're used to humanity. We're used to a society, to culture, to even friends and family. We're used to neglect. We're used to hurting someone and then there's distance between us. We're used to being missed we're used to abuse. We're used to a lack of love and forgiveness in the name of justice. That's not God. The heart of the Father is for you. Based on his character, on his honor, on his name, he will keep pursuing you. That's the language. I mentioned this early in verse number four, this language of covenant, the word there, the covenant love of God is chesed. Everybody say chesed. That's pretty good guttural, okay? He's being upper guttural, not a lower guttural, okay? That's Hebrew for you. That chesed is a loving kindness that cannot stop. It cannot be broken. That's the kind of covenant love that God has for each one of us. And he invites us back into that. Here are five things that I want us to walk away with this morning as we have looked at this, this prayer by Daniel, as we see this adoration, this confession, this petition. And I'll go through these quickly. But the first one is this, that the Bible tells us who God is and who we are. That's the message of the scriptures. Even here in the middle of all these prophetic, uh, apocalyptic literature types of things, the message of all 66 books of this Bible is that God will continue to love and continue to pursue you in the midst of your sinfulness and rebellion against him. This is not a book of rules, not a book of do this, don't do this. It's a book of love. It's a book of pursuit. His heart is for you. Secondly, we're the only body on earth that confesses sin. The church is the only organization, organism on earth that confesses sin. So where confession of sin dies out, we are no longer the church. Acts 4 says that confession is a gift. We have the opportunity to confess our sin, to declare who God is and to declare that we are in need of him. Man, that's a great gift. Thirdly, a religious person prays for other people's sin. A repentant person prays for their sin first. We see here Daniel praying for his sin, but he's identifying with the group. He's saying, this is our sin. 
Can I ask you, how often are you repenting of your sin? Is it weekly, daily, hourly, minutely? When we understand that we're often seeking to fulfill our deep desires by our own resources, man, that should increase the veracity of our confession, of our repentance of sin. What a great gift we have. The fourth thing is that I can't change someone's heart, but I can pray to the one that can. So I can't change this other person's heart. I can't change my kid's heart. I can't change my neighbor's hearts. I can't change your hearts. I can't change the hearts of that Chinese people group that I can't pronounce. I I can't change their hearts, but I can plead and I can intercede on their behalf. Lastly, Daniel here is interceding for his people. And I'm reminded of of Moses, who he comes down from, from Mount Sinai with these tablets, with the Ten Commandments. And what have the people done? They've made this, this golden calf. And what does God say? I'm about to wipe them all out. Moses, what does he do? He lays down on the ground. He says, please, 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 please. Just, just give him one more chance. We see Moses doing that over and over. We see Joshua doing that. We see Daniel doing it here. He's interceding for his people. But friend, listen, we have a better intercessor. And his name is Jesus Christ. He intercedes for us and he substitutes himself in our place. Taking the wrath of God as we confess our sin, we confess our hope and we confess our need. Because of his sacrifice, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is interceding for us. In fact, Romans chapter eight and verse number 34, uh, it says this, throw that up for me. Romans 8, 34, it says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Now, the work of Jesus on our behalf is done, but the work of Jesus is not done because today he is interceding for us. Hebrews chapter seven, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friend, today, February 19th, Jesus is praying for you. Right now, Jesus is interceding the heart of the Father for you. He identified with us in his life. He's identified with us in death. He continues to identify with us even today by saying, my blood, my life, my body that was broken, my blood that was shed, it covers them. I'm coming between the wrath of God and the presence of God saying, come back, come back. I'm pursuing you. I want you. I love you. I like you. That's what he's saying to you this morning. And that prayer never stops. And it's based on the identity of Jesus. I want to spend just a moment. I put three questions on the screen. I want to spend just a moment and I want us to to take these before the Lord. But I want you to answer these three questions in a rhetorical fashion so you can keep these answers to yourself. The first one is this. Consider these things. And if you want to take a picture of these or write them down or whatever, consider them later. 
What do you think Jesus might be praying for you right now? Because we know that he is. Secondly, what would you hope to hear him say? What would you hope that Jesus is saying on your behalf? Thirdly, what is his facial expression as you bring your sin to him? As you bring your sin to Jesus, I know for me, oftentimes I think Jesus is grimacing like, you again? You did that again? Oh, this is dirty. Uh, I guess I'll forgive it. But I'm going to let you waller in it just a little bit. I'm going I'm to let you experience the, the consequences of it a little bit. I'm going to let you stew in it a little bit. And then as soon as I think you've done enough penance, then, then you can bring it to me and I'll forgive it. Do you think as we bring our sin to him, he takes it, but he's not going to look at us in the face? All right, well, I mean, that's what, I mean, that's what I said I would do. So I guess I'll forgive you. I guess I'll let you back into a relationship with me. What do you think the face of Jesus is going to be like when you get to heaven? Is it going to be like, oh man, are you for real? You, you made it? Okay, you can, you can come to heaven, but you're like going to be in the ghetto part, okay? Like you just barely scrape by. No. We bring our sin to Jesus and his face lights up. He welcomes that because we are confessing that he is our hope and we need him. That's based on his character. That's based on his righteousness. We are his people. It's his holy hill. Father, I pray even now that through the power of your word that we've seen in Ezekiel and Hebrews and Romans and Daniel chapter 9, we can look back at Isaiah 44 and see just the the fact that we would be nothing without you and that your promises are sure that Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed on our behalf. And while we can acknowledge these things in our minds, Father, I pray even now that you would allow us to experience the presence of Jesus in our hearts. And that as we look to him as our only hope in life and in death, that we would be reminded that we are enjoyed. You don't keep us at distance. You invite us to call you Abba, Father. You're interceding for us. The Son is interceding for us even before we pray. Welcoming us back in, satisfying and fulfilling the deep desires of our hearts. Father, remind us of your character and your honor and your righteousness. Remind us of your love and your embrace, your forgiveness, your smile, 
your pursuit of us. Man, we can run as hard, as fast as we can. And you still run us down with your mercy. Remind us of that. And it is through the blood of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Friends, this time of communion is a time, and we, we said it before already, but the alternative to hiding is a refusal to hide. As we partake in communion, we take the bread and we dip it in the juice, and we are refusing to hide our sin. If you partake in this, what you're saying is, I am a sinner in need of grace. I am a sinner in need of grace. And guess what? That's all of us. So don't be surprised if someone else comes up. I didn't, I didn't know that person had sinned this week. And in the same way, God the Father, as you participate, he's not surprised either. He's not shocked. He welcomes you to the table to identify with Jesus. So may our hearts be filled with joy. May our hearts be filled with confession. May our hearts be filled with a reminder of who Jesus is and what he has done. He has paid the price for us. We are identifying him as our only hope because we have a great need. So friends, I would invite you, as we gather, let's do this with joy and let's remember and cry out to the Lord with gratitude. Family, you're invited to join me.